I have a hunch a man like you might even beat old Trubaska through that pass. This broadcast of the PJC Media Network seeks to present wholesome, thought-provoking, and entertaining content. However, the views expressed by the hosts of PJC Media are theirs and theirs alone. They do not reflect the views of this network or its affiliates. Please utilize listener discretion. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Let's Talk About It with Jenny White show. Each week, we feature different topics concerning issues that sometimes can be difficult to talk about. These issues concern children and adults who may be autistic, have Asperger's, or have mental disorders of any kind. We will discuss law enforcement and how they interact with these persons. Now, let's start the show. And good evening, and good evening, and thank you for joining us tonight, and we're going to be talking about Black history, and now I want to have recognized my second, <laughs> my host, he uh, helps me. And his name is Mr. Coleman. How you doing? Good. Hi, Jenny White. How are you doing today? I'm fine, sir. Good. So this is Black History Month. So if you have something that you would like to say, you're welcome to to do it. You're welcome. Yes. Well, I think Black History Month for black people is every day we wake up as uh, Black History, Black History Day every month. That's a good but, thing. Yeah, but... That's uh, pretty good, yeah. Yeah, but to talk about some of the uh, accomplishments of black people um, that we seldom hear about and some that we that have been designated black folk heroes, such as Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, um, and on occasion, um, Malcolm X and the Black Panthers. Um, just to highlight uh, all things black, uh, because American history is black history, you know. And right now, they're trying to um, eliminate critical race theory. They don't want uh, students, you know, grade school students, high school students to be taught, college students to be taught, uh, you know, race theory, you know, the history of race and everything that's taking place. Uh, they have uh, the governor in Florida has uh, banned some books in Duval County. Uh, thank you, Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente, story, Henry Aaron Green, a uh, book on Rosa Parks, another book called Dumpling Soup, which has black people on it, a storm called Katrina, 
I mean, these are all books that are banned in Duval County, uh, Florida. So it's amazing, you know, like they said, uh, like they say, sometimes uh, uh, I can't remember exactly how the saying goes, but but what it means is uh, as far as we've come, we've got even further to go, (laughs) pretty much, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, all the accomplishments that we've made, and, uh, and we still, sometimes it feels like we're starting from the beginning, starting from scratch. And the people that don't know their history are doomed to repeat. So uh, a lot of people were banking and counting, counting on uh, repeating history. Um, but uh, first, what I'd like to do is start off talking about uh, James Winkfield, who was uh, a thoroughbred thoroughbred jockey and horse trainer from Kentucky, and he's best remembered as the last African-American to ride a winner in the Kentucky Derby, which was 1902. He won the Kentucky Derby twice, uh, two years in a row, 1901 and 1902. He was born April 12, 1982, I'm sorry, 1882, in Childsburg, Kentucky, and he passed away in March, March 23, 1974, at the age of uh, 91. Uh, He was married, and his career began uh, as a jockey in 1898 when he was 16 years old. He was suspended for a year one year after one race for his involvement in a four-horse accident at the starting gate. However, he returned in 1900 to ride Al Thrive, the name of the horse in the Kentucky Derby, and he finished third. He rode in the race again in 1901 and 1902, winning on his eminence and Allen Adele, respectively. Those were the horses. In 1901, he won 220 races. He competed mm-hmm. in the final derby in 1903, finishing second on early. Winkfield was blackballed in the USA after dishonoring a contract to ride for a different owner after agreeing to ride for another one but was offered the chance to race in Russ, R-U-S-S, where he quickly rose to fame. He won the Russian Oaks five times, the Russian Derby four times, Desire's prize on three occasions and the Warsaw Derby twice. The Russian Revolution caused him to leave the country in 1917, and he moved to France, where he resumed racing, scoring numerous wins, including the Prix de President de la République and the Grand Prix de Dauville and Prix Jean Adams. Those are three races that he won. He retired as a jockey at age 50, having won more than 2,500 races, then began a second successful career as a horse trainer. Wingfield lived on a farm near the Hippodrome de Maisons Lafitte racetrack in Maisons Lafitte on the outskirts of Paris. He remained there until fleeing the German occupation of France during World War II. After the war, he eventually returned to the farm at Maison's Lafitte 
where he lived until his death in 1974. While he was treated with respect in Europe, segregation still ruled American society. Sports mm-hmm. Illustrated invited Winfield to a reception at the Brown Hotel in Louisville. I actually stayed in that hotel uh, in 1961. He was told he couldn't enter by the front door. He was admitted after the magazine explained that he was an invited guest. Winfield made an appearance at the Kentucky Derby that year to celebrate 60 years since his historic victories in 2004. He was inducted posthumously into the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame. The Jimmy Winkfield Stakes at Aqueduct Racetrack is run in his honor. In 2005, the United States House of Representatives passed the resolution honoring Winkfield. The full details can be read at the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame. So that's just the history of we know how the Kentucky Derby is one of the elite horse races and, uh, you know, not a whole lot of black participants that participate. They're really known for the big hats, you know, or a lot of um, people wear big hats. A lot of the ladies wear, you know, their Kentucky Derby hats. But you never really, really hear about any black jockeys now. I mean, I don't, and I don't know of any. Um, but, you know, we've been great all our lives. And so these type of things, this type of information just seems to only resurface, only surface around um, Black History Month, February. It's like, okay, we, we we find all these black history facts and we throw them all in, in, in one month. And then the rest of the year, you don't hear anything. So, uh, You're right. You're right. So that's... Yeah, so, you know, that's just one of the stories that I wanted to uh, share in regards to a black jockey winning the Kentucky Derby two years in a row, 1901 and 1902. And... also like to, you know, just mention uh, some black-owned inventions that uh, we have, people that we have. Uh, the folding cabinet bed was invented in 1885 by Sarah Good, uh, first black woman to receive a U.S. patent. What was what, what, a folding cabinet bed. 1885, Sarah Good, first black woman to receive a U.S. patent. She moved to Chicago and opened a furniture store. It was there Mm -hmm. she came up with an industry-changing idea that brought more urban residents with limited space into her store. Well, I mean, I remember we had a folding uh, folding layaway bed, you know, bed you fold up, and then company come over and you unfold it. Had a mattress, <laughs> had a metal frame, and a mattress. Oh, uh, yeah. Rollaway bed. Yeah. Put it in the closet until you needed to. Somebody needed to sleep on it. 
So I think that was pretty much what this was, folding cabinet bed. Uh, we've got potato chips. Uh, George Crumb, who was working as a chef at a, re- at a resort in New York, the customer sent his dish of french fries back to the kitchen claiming that they weren't good. Uh, he said, in an irritated fit, Crumb cut the potatoes as thinly as possible, fried them until they were burnt crisp, and threw a generous handful of salt on top, and thus the chip was born. So he was sound like he was a little pissed. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> and we've got a gas mask. A gas mask was made That's by Garrett Morgan. Oh, yeah. Developed uh, what he called the safety hood after noticing how many firefighters were killed by smoke on the job. The hood, which went over the head, featured tubes connected to wet sponges that filtered out smoke and provided fresh oxygen. Uh, protective mailbox. Philip B. Downing created a mailbox design that featured an outer door and an inner safety door to avoid parcels being stolen. This safety mm-hmm. device allows mailboxes to be set up everywhere. So similar to mailboxes that you have at the office or UPS and other places, um, never knew that. The Blood Bank by Charles Richard Drew. Drew he yeah, became yeah. interested in researching the preservation of blood when he was studying at Columbia University. Drew discovered a method of separating red blood cells from fat and then storing the two components separately. This new process allowed blood to be stored for more than a week, which was the maximum at that time. Drew documented these findings in a paper that led to the first blood bank. Hmm. Uh, improved ironing board. In the late 19th century, the ironing <laughs> board was improved by Sarah Boone, one of the first black women in U.S. history to receive a patent. She created she a narrow... Something else, didn't she? Sarah Boone? Yeah. Yeah. No, first lady was Sarah Good. Sarah Good folding cabinet bed. This is Sarah Boone, like Daniel Boone, one of the first black women. No, no, I don't know you said Boone, but I but I think uh, I've heard of something something else. else. You're echoing. Yeah, you got an echo. Who me? Who me? Yes, you. Who be? Then who? Uh-huh. You work on the echo, I'll keep reading. Uh-huh. If anybody has a question, you, or, uh, <laughs> anybody else, you know, I'll keep reading some of these and then go into uh, the 11 black senators that we feel during our time. Uh, of the Constitution. I'll go and uh, just go over some of that information. But if anybody has another Black History um, stories or facts that they would like to share, feel free to chime in and press the one. Um, uh, so we stopped at the improved dining board in the late 19th century. The dining board was improved by Sarah Boone, 
one of the black, first black women in U.S. history to receive a patent. He created a narrower and curved design, making it easier to hide garments. It said Boone's design morphed into the modern-day board that we use today. Go figure. Home security system. African-American nurse Mary Van Britton Brown devised an early security unit for her own home. She and her husband took out a patent for the system in the same year, and they were awarded the patent three years later in 1969. Home security systems commonly used today took various elements from her design. Interesting. The three-light traffic light. Uh, was invented by Garrett Morgan, one of the first black persons in Cleveland, Ohio, to own a car after he witnessed a severe car accident at an intersection in the city. He expanded on the current traffic light by adding a yield component, warning oncoming drivers of an impeding stop. So he expanded it and put that yellow light in there. Uh, refrigerated trucks. Frederick McKinley Jones created a roof-mounted cooling system that was used to refrigerate goods on trucks during extended transportation in the mid-1930s. He received a patent for his invention in 1940 and co-founded the U.S. Thermal Control Company, later known as Thermoking. Oh, man, I didn't know that. Frederick McKinley Jones. Hmm. Automatic elevator doors. Alexander Miles took out a patent in 1887 for a mechanism that automatically opens and closes elevator shaft doors. His designs are largely reflected in elevators used today. Electric microphone. Dr. James E. West co-invented a foil electric microphone, which was less expensive to produce than the typically used condenser microphones. <clears throat> All right. How about color IBM PC monitor and gigahertz chip? So you can thank Mark Dean for co-inventing the color monitor. Without his invention, we'd still be typing in a colorless interweb. Okay, super soaker. Summer just wouldn't be the same without Lonnie Johnson's invention. Johnson was an aerospace engineer for NASA who happened to invent the popular children's toy. I think he sued um, one of those toy makers. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was Mattel. I think it was Mattel. Yeah, it might have been Mattel and won about $75 million. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, Lonnie Johnson, super soaker. Tissue holder. Mary Davidson invented both the tissue holder while disabled for multiple sclerosis. All right, all right. We can thank Mary Davidson for, for our tissue holders. All right, let's see if y'all can guess this one. Peanut butter. Anybody anybody know who invented peanut butter? I can't think of his name, but I'm Carver. Oh. Carver. George Washington George Carver. Washington. Right. Carver, Carver, yeah. Yep, George Washington Carver. 
We can thank him for and the, the colors and peanuts and colors and all of that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see. Laser Faco. All right. Patricia Bass, an ophthalmologist and laser scientist, invented a device and technique used to remove cataracts and revive patients' eyesight. All right. Patricia Bass. All right. Black ophthalmologist and laser scientist. Uh, automatic gear shift. Richard Spikes created the automatic gear shift, helping people drive up hills and everywhere. Mm-hmm. All right, the clothes dryer. George T. Sampson created the clothes dryer in 1892. All right, all right. Dust fan. Thanks to Lloyd P. Ray, we can sweep things out from under the rug. All right. Play on words, dustpan. All right, how about the folding chair? John Purdy created the folding chair, which is used at picnics and school graduations everywhere. All right, now I did know this. Golf tees, totally different sport before Dr. George Grant came along. So Dr. George Grant was a black man who invented the golf tee. Ice cream scooper, Alfred L. Crowley invented the ice cream scooper allowing kids to have larger scoops than spoonfuls, all right? Lawnmower, John Albert Burr, fully made over the lawnmower, bringing better traction, rotary blades, and allowed closer cut to buildings. Lawn sprinkler. This invention by Joseph A. Smith helped dads everywhere keep their grass green while allowing kids to have a fun toy to jump around in. Lawn sprinkler. Modern toilet. How about that? Thomas Elkins. You can thank Thomas Elkins for your porcelain throne. Without Elkins, your bathroom breaks certainly wouldn't be as comfortable. Okay. (laughs) The mop. Thomas W. Stewart created the mop, which helps to ease the back-breaking labor. All right. Reversible baby stroller. William Richardson created the first baby stroller with independent wheels. All right. Drag queens. Uh Uh-oh. William Dorsey Swan is highly regarded as the first drag queen in the United States. All right, we'll take a black man to dress like a like a black woman, huh? All right, drag. <laughs> logo mania, Dapper Dan. All right, Dapper Dan took the logos of designer brands and used them for apparel, furniture, and more. According to the Black Inventors Museum, all of these were also created by black inventors. Apparel, furniture, and more. All right. Let's see. Airplane propelling, James S. Adams, biscuit cutter, A.P. Ashbourne, coin changer, James A. Bauer, rotary engine, Andrew J. Beard, car coupler, Andrew J. Beard, letterbox, G.E. Beckett. Stainless steel pads, Alfred Benjamin. Torpedo discharger, 
Bradbury, Disposable Syringe, Field Book, Coin Planner, Henry Blair, Cotton Planner, Henry Blair, Sweet Sweeper, CD Books, and on and on and on and on. on. Did you do the traffic lights? Yeah, Garrett Morgan. Yeah. Okay. Lotions and soaps. George W. Carver. Paints and stains. George Washington Carver. All right. So now I'm going to read off a list of uh, eleven black senators we had in history, and then after that we can take a break. Our first black senator was elected in 1870 in Mississippi. His name was Hiram Rose Rebel, and he was born around 1822. Our second black senator, elected in 1874, was Blanche K. Bruce, Mississippi. And he was born 1841, died 1898. Our third black senator was elected almost 100 years later in 1966, Edward Brooks III. He was born in 1919, he died 2015. He was a senator from Massachusetts. That was 1966. The next senator, was a black senator, was elected in 1992. Carol Mosley Braun, who represented Illinois. And then our fifth black senator, elected in 2004, from the state of Illinois. Can anybody guess who that was, 2004? Um, Barack Obama. Barack Obama, right. Very good. We do have some uh, some black history historians in the building. All right. And we have uh, 2009, we have Roland Burris, who was appointed um, as a senator in Illinois after the governor tried to sell Barack Obama's seat. So this black man uh, served a matter of uh, less than one term, a matter of um, months. And in 2013, we had uh, another black senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott, was appointed, and then he won the following election after that. Uh, uh, number eight senator was uh, interim interim senator, I think maybe. He was in office maybe 23 days. It was a very short period of time in Massachusetts. And then we our ninth black senator was elected in 2013, Cory Booker out of New Jersey. Uh-huh. And our tenth black senator, was elected in 2016 out of California. Anybody care to guess what her name was, what her name is? 
That's not Sheila, is it? Huh? Nope, 2016, out of California. She's she's the vice president. Well, Camilla Harris. Camilla, yep, Camilla Harris. All right. And then um, 2021, we had uh, 11th senator who won (laughs) in a runoff. Uh, Warnock. The illustrious state of Georgia, yes, Raphael Warnock. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, black history and American history all in one. Okay, and I gave you the wrong information. It wasn't Mattel, it was Hasbro. Hasbro, very good. All right, yeah. So that, uh, and did they say how much he, uh, he sued him for? Uh, for he he sued for one billion, and the suit came about because um, he he sold his patent to one company, and Hasbro bought the company, and only gave him a fourth of the money that he was supposed to be getting from the sales of the guns. Then he found out, that, and the federal government made. Uh, the company made Hasbro open up the book, and he mm. found out it was two hundred million dollars that he was owed, and they made him pay. It. They made the Hasbro pay him. Mm-hmm. Oh, he got paid. Oh yeah. So you say about two hundred million? Yeah. Okay, well that's a long way from seventy-five million. Yes, it is. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. You all right? When you're making that type of money, uh, yeah, I read an article. No, go ahead. His still holds twenty patents to other different companies, so they're okay. they're okay. Oh yeah, and I mean, and you know, uh, I think with black families and black education and black genealogy. I think there's a lot of information that our forefathers just didn't know in regard yeah. to, I mean, it wasn't taught. That's, you know, how to get a patent isn't something that you taught in school. And it's not something that people go around and tell you about. And I think, you right. know, that type of information, you have to research it and find out about it on your own. If you have an idea that you feel stolen, not being patented. Oh man, oh it's it's been so much wealth stolen, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think patents. I don't know if you have a patent for life, or if patents have to be renewed. That's something that I'm going to have to look it's up. For life. Oh yeah, it's been a whole lot of. Um, people's intellectual property and and inventions that have been taken and stolen. Uh, There's been a lot of wealth that has been generated um, in the black community that has just been taken. Uh, And I'll give you a story. Um, Sarah Rector. Uh, Sarah Rector was the richest uh, black girl in, in, in the world. At one point, um, back in the early um, 1920s, 
when the United States was uh, holding Oklahoma be a state as, as opposed to a territory. <laughs> Back in that time, they were giving uh, the blacks uh, like a hundred acres of bad rocky land uh, to fulfill uh, their promise and obligation in order to turn Oklahoma into a state. And so Sarah Rector and her family, uh, she was, you know, allocated so much property, um, and it just so happened it turned out there was oil on their, on her land. And so um, her father, uh, having a problem, you know, paying the, the taxes on the land, ended up going into a deal with Standard Oil, which I think paid them about $15,000 a, a month back then, which was, which I guess today's money would be generated well over 15000 a month back then, probably close to half a million today. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what happened was uh, Booker T. Washington, um, they brought her family, uh, they took her family out, well, they took her and her brother out of um, Oklahoma and took them to Tennessee to protect them and, and, and for them to go to school uh, because when you accumulated wealth back then, um, white people appointed you a guardian, right. so to speak, someone to oversee your spending. And so, um, you know, they were trying to um, steal the money. She was so rich that the white people representing her had had petitioned her to be able to ride in first class on the train because she had so much money. I mean, she was just rich, you know. They had to petition so that she could ride first class on the train. So that was Sarah Rector. Uh, there was another um, family uh, in Oklahoma as well that had land uh, that had oil on it. And uh, the story goes uh, there were some white men that came in, uh, put a bomb up under the house, blew the house up, killed everybody, and then came in, forged the paperwork, and took over the land. Uh so, you know, it's like how many stories like that do we have um, that we don't know about? So there's been a lot of black wealth that has been stolen. Um, there's another story of a black man in Carolina, I believe, stayed in Carolina, and... Um, he was very wealthy. After slavery, he um, had some land and had done well. And he was um, rich to the point where uh, pretty arrogant. Uh, let's see, his name was Anthony Crawford. And he was born in 1865. And he was killed. October 21st, 1916, 
He was an African-American man who was killed by a lynch mob in Aidesville, South Carolina. And the story goes, he was born early in the Reconstruction era. After the Civil War, Crawford's father became the owner of a modest acreage of cotton fields on the Little River, about seven miles west of Aidesville, which he worked with his son. Anthony was an ambitious and literate child who routinely walked several miles to the school in Aidesville. Crawford inherited the land on his father's death, which he increased by substantial land purchases in 1883, 1888, 1899, and 1903. In the mid or late 1890s, Crawford was co-founder of the Industrial Union of Abeville County, which was devoted to the material, moral, and intellectual advance of the colored people. He was the father of 12 sons and four daughters. By 1916, his land holdings had expanded to 427 acres, or as much as 600 acres, according to some sources. Many of Crawford's children had settled on plots adjoining that of their father, with a net worth of approximately $20,000 to $25,000 in 1916 dollars, Crawford was without doubt one of the richest men in Aidville County. Crawford was also known for his refusal to tolerate disrespect or defiance in any form. Once when his church's preacher delivered a sermon decrying Crawford's meddling in church affairs, Crawford jumped out of his seat, struck the man, and fired him on the spot. Uh, now, this is the preacher. He then jumped out of his seat, knocked the preacher upside his head, and fired him. This extended even to white. The day a white man hits me is the day I die, he was quoted as having said to his children. After his death, New York investigative reporter Roy Nash interviewed many of Abel's most prominent citizens, such as Dr. Harrison president of Farmers Bank, Harrison commented that Crawford was insolent to whites and got what he deserved. <clears throat> Although Harrison wanted the new the law upheld, he did not want a white man's right to whip a Negro once in a while interfered with. So on October 21st, 1916, Crawford was taking two loads of cotton and a load of seed to Abeville and had a disagreement over the price of cotton seed with W.D. Barksdale, a white store owner. After Crawford left the store, one of Barksdale's employees followed him outside and hit him in the head with an axe handle. Crawford called for help, which drew the attention of Sheriff R.M. Burt. The officer arrested Crawford, most likely for his own protection as a mob of angry whites was already beginning to accumulate. Crawford was held at the jail briefly. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm looking at this story. I think it seems like it's missing something. Um, well, I know the white man came out, hit him upside the head with an axe handle. He called for help, but he also was hiding, you know, in, in, the, in the, the bushes and, so Crawford was held at the jail briefly and released later that day on $15 bail. While Crawford was arranging bail, Barksdale was organizing a mob with McKinney Cannes, 
C-A-N-N, to whip Crawford and cure him if possible. Sheriff Burt allowed Crawford to exit from a side door, but the mob saw him anyway and pursued him into a cotton mill nearby. But Crawford took shelter in the boiler room. McKinney Can entered the boiler room after Crawford and Crawford grabbing a hammer from some nearby tools knocked the man unconscious. Although the mill workers attempted to stop it, Crawford was stabbed and severely beaten by the mob. Sheriff R.M. Burtz appeared and arrested Crawford once more, much to the chagrin of the mob of whites. The sheriff could only get Crawford away from the mob by promising to the brothers of Can that he would not try to sneak Crawford out of town before the full extent of McKinney's Can's injuries were known. As it happened, Can was not badly hurt, although Crawford was. He was treated by physician C.C. Gamble, who also happened to be the mayor of Abeville. Gamble announced that Crawford would likely die from his wounds. Considering that Crawford might die before the mob could get to him and concerned that the sheriff might spirit him out of town at 3 p.m., around 200 white men besieged the jail, captured and disarmed Sheriff Burke, and abducted Crawford. Crawford was dragged down three flights of stairs amongst a cheering bloodthirsty mob, where they proceeded to beat him with rocks, wagon boards, jumped and spit on him. The mob then dragged him through the black section of town with a rope around his neck as a warning. The mob then stole a lumber wagon from a black driver, used it to take Crawford to a fairground nearby. Crawford, likely dead by that point, was still hung from a tree, and armed whites riddled his body with bullets, rendering it, rendering it to a bloody pulp by a thirsty white mob that resented his wealth. The paper's headline the next day read, Negro strung up and shot to pieces. After dark, the county coroner, F.W.R. Nance, assembled a jury, which he knowingly included two members of the lynch mob, one being his grandson to the fairground to cut down Crawford, which he knowingly included two members of the lynch mob, one being his grandson to the fairground to cut down Crawford's mutilated remains. Nance reported its founding as Crawford had died at the hands of parties unknown. That night, the relentless mob decided they needed to drive Crawford's children and their families from the area. A consortium of white businessmen, Jack Perrin, J. Allen Smith, and J.S. Stark, worrying about the economic effect of such a decision, opposed these decisions and was able to convince the mob to arrange a meeting the following Monday to decide what to do with the Crawford family. On October 23, 1916, the white citizens of Abeville, including many members of the lynch mob, voted to expel the remainder of Crawford's family from South Carolina and to seize their considerable property holdings. They also voted to close down all the black-owned businesses in Abeville. The Crawfords requested they be given until November 15th, and it was granted. They were to leave by mid-November. They did indeed leave leaving behind their family's generational assets. Now, right, Jimmy White, you uh, want to take a break? Take us to a commercial break. We'll come back and and put, get the show on the road. Okay. Well, it sounds like Jenny White is in the phone. What is that? Is so, so I have tax issues? 
we know exactly how to handle your individual needs. We personalize each individual and give you the time required to focus on your needs. We audit you before the IRS does. The IRS is not on your side, but we are. We set up companies to do tax preparation, tax and retirement planning, bookkeeping, IRS audits, and reviews. Please call me, Deborah Mitchell, owner of Mitchell & Company, for a free consultation at 248-354-5122. And visit my website, MitchellTaxAccounting.com. Do you know a youth in need of a place to live? Have you always wanted to make a difference in the city of Detroit, but not known how? The answer to both of these questions is Covenant House, Michigan. Covenant House is a youth homeless shelter serving 18 to 24-year-olds in the city of Detroit with education, resources, job preparation, and so much more. If you'd like to learn more about these programs, please call 313-463-2000 or look us up on the web at www.covenanthousemi.org. Engaging the culture's imagination through speculative fiction, the Untold Podcast produces audio fiction from a Christian worldview. Find us over at untoldpodcast.com, where we partner with authors to tell science fiction, fantasy, supernatural, and horror stories. Find links at untoldpodcast.com to subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, and a variety of other platforms. Each month we produce high-quality audio fiction that's free to download and free to listen. Our submissions are open, and we're always looking to add another great story to over 24 hours of narrative entertainment. Find all of our audio fiction over at www.untoldpodcast.com. Okay, and we're back. All right, we're we're back. Uh, If anyone has a black history fact or trivia they'd like to share or make a comment, feel free to do that. Um, uh, but what I would like to say is uh, the next story is about Freedman Savings Bank. Freedman's Savings and Trust Company, known as the Freedman Savings Bank, was a private savings bank, savings bank chartered by the U.S. Congress on March 3rd, 1865, to collect deposits from the newly emancipated community. So all these newly free black people, the Congress created a bank that they call Freedman Saving Bank so that they could collect deposits from the newly emancipated communities. The bank opened 37 branches across 17 states in Washington, D.C., within seven years and collected funds from over 67000 At the height of its success, the Freedman's Savings Bank held assets worth more than $3.7 million in $1872, which translates to approximately $80 million in 2021. However, 
the rapid development of the bank was largely driven by false claims and was coupled with mismanagement and fraud. Uh, the bank was, I think, uh, taught or told that it was a black-owned bank. I think they had a lot of black faces, but it wasn't a black-owned bank. The bank failed in 1874. They even uh, brought in Frederick Douglass to be the president of the bank to try to save it, but it was too late. The bank failed in 1874, weighed, weighed down by speculative loans issued by the bank's white officials throughout its existence. Historians believe that the bank's failure not only destroyed the savings of many African Americans, but also their trust in financial institutions. Mm-hmm. The site where the bank headquarters once stood was later occupied by the Treasury Annex. The annex was renamed the Freedman's Bank Building in 2016. At the end of the American Civil War, the poor economic conditions of the formerly enslaved freedmen were aggravated by the economic devastation of the southern states. The newly freed blacks had few economic resources or capital and even less exposure to private enterprise. Many soon turned to sharecropping and forced labor in the South. To help alleviate their socioeconomic conditions, the Republican-controlled U.S. Congress established the Freedmen's Bureau, passing an act of incorporation and a charter of the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company, which was signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln on March 3, 1865. The founder of the Freedman Savings Bank, John W. Alvord, was inspired by the success of existing military savings banks. These military banks were created during the Civil War to collect the wages of black soldiers. General Rufus Saxton established the first one in Beaufort, South Carolina, in 1864. Other examples include a bank in Norfolk, Virginia, established by General Benjamin Butler in and a bank in Louisiana created by General Nathaniel Banks. Many former slaves were liberated by the Union Army and were paid to join the Army. Troops earned a little cash from their enrollment and participation, and the Freedmen's Bank became the first banking entity to include them. Most accounts held between $5 and $50. From 1865 to 1868, the expansion of the Freedmen's Bank was largely driven by the money collected from black soldiers. In the bank's first year, in 1865, two of the branches established were created through the transfer of existing local military savings institutions. Many other branch locations were chosen specifically based on the local black soldier population. Bank officials made efforts to build the bank legitimacy and deposits, raising part of the black soldiers' wages. For example, many cashiers at branches also worked as military dispersing offices. From the Freedman Savings Bank creation, there were several deficiencies in its governance and management that contributed to its ultimate collapse. The bank trustees had little incentive to govern effectively. All 50 original trustees were white and were not required, required to give any security for the faithful discharge of their trust. 
Many trustees had little to no involvement with the bank, some even denying, denying that they had agreed to join the board. The bank's founding charter lacked any penal clauses to hold trustees personally liable for the bank's solvency. It prohibited lending until the amendment of 1870. While two-thirds of the bank's deposits were required to be invested in U.S. government securities, the use of the remaining funds was unrestricted. Osloss wrote from this provision was somewhat disquieting to those familiar with the history of savings banks, for they knew that available funds frequently became unavailable. There is also evidence that the bank's management misled depositors about a supposed government guarantee, interest payments, and the use of the deposit funds. During its initial years, the bank marketed itself widely to attract deposits, distributing bank pamphlets at churches and freedmen's bureaus, schools, advertising in local newspapers, and holding public meetings at churches, beneficial societies, and the bank's branches. Its advertisements often depicted the bank as having the backing and, government, and guarantee of the federal government, but as a private corporation, it had no guarantee. For example, an article in the semi-weekly Louisiana stated, there is no possibility of loss for the reason that the government of the United States is responsible for every dollar deposited. The bank promised its deposit a 6% interest but often pay a lower rate. The bank's management closely linked this affairs to the investment bank, Jay Cook & Company, which invested heavily in railroads. As head of the finance committee of the bank, Henry D. Cook, Jay Cook's brother, deposited a significant share of the cash of the Freeman's Bank at the First National Bank in Washington, D.C., which was Jay Cook's office. This amount at its highest was 500000 on which the Cook brothers paid a 5% interest. Even while the Freedman's Bank was promising 6% to its own depositors, in violation of its charter, the Freedman's Bank invested in the bonds of the Union Pacific and Central Railroad made as early as 1869. So that's one of the ways, you know, that these white people took the money. They took the money. They took $500,000 out of Freedman's Bank of black people's money and took it to the First National Bank in Washington, D.C., and uh, they paid a 5% interest on it. So that's how, that, that's how their wealth was created. A series of increasingly speculative investments caused the bank to accumulate bad debt while the building, the decision to build a new building in Washington, D.C., added to its outlays. On May 2, 1870, the bank was authorized by Congress to make loans backed by real estate up to half of the deposit funds. These loans were to be secured by mortgages that would double the value of the loan. Another apparently corrupt investment was in loans totaling 50000 to the Seneca Sandstore, Sandstone Company, owner of the Seneca Quarry. Secured by the company's worthless bonds, the loan was approved by Henry D. Cook, who was sat on the board of the Quarry Company. Bank officials approved personal loans to themselves and associates of the bank. 
For instance, loans totaling 224000 were made to Robert I. Fleming, the contractor for the bank's building in Washington, D.C., even as the failure of the bank was eminent in the depository withdrawals were refused. A secret loan of $33,366 was made to Juan Boyle by the actuary, George L. Stickney, on June 30, 1874. So wrapping this up, when the Panic of 1873 struck, several railroad projects failed, which undermined the finances of the Freedman Savings Bank. This led to a series of runs in different branches. Following the panic, in an attempt to restore confidence in the bank among the African-American community, there were there was a significant change in the leadership of the bank. Trustees of the bank disposed the founder and president, John W. Alvord, in March 1874, and elected in favor of Frederick Douglass as president. Of this change in leadership, Walter Linwood Fleming remarked, some looking for a scapegoat were anxious that colored officials be in charge when the bank failed, as they were sure it would. Others thought that a Negro administration would restore the confidence of the depositors and enable the institution to survive until better times. The bank closed on July 2, 1874. Despite the reform attempt, some scholars claimed that the failure of the Freedmen's Bank and the loss of their savings led to a distrust of all banking institutions for several generations among the black community. Mm-hmm. So this is just one of the latest in the story. Um, just saying how that robbery took place without a gun. And how mm-hmm. black wealth or, you know, black income was stolen, just taken. Um, and the last piece of this story, the depositors' losses, just after the collapse in July 1874, three commissioners were appointed to wind down the bank. They found that the value of assets was lower than, the register, than registered in the bank's book. Liquid assets, cash, and government securities amounted to less than 2% of the bank's total liabilities. Many depositors never received their deposits back. To repay them, the commissioners decided to rely on personal passbooks only instead of the central bank books. Depositors needed to mail their passbooks to Washington to submit their claim. Many depositors who had lost faith in the bank were reluctant to do so. Others faced legal challenges in proving their identities or their relationships to depositors who had died. Some who did receive checks did not cash them, not understanding their use. The repayments came late, leaving cash poor depositors stranded. Not until November 1875 did the bank start payouts. The commissioners, even in the face of, of many special requests from depositors for small, immediate payments, instructed cashiers to, reho- to withhold all money even for cases of extreme necessity. In response, some depositors who had lost faith in the bank were, and were in dire need sought to sell their claims against the bank at a discount. Some even sold their passbooks to shopkeepers in exchange for groceries and other supplies. On many occasions, steep discounts were enforced on the claims of depositors. For example, in 1881, an account holder at the New Orleans branch settled his $352 deposit 
for just $28.16. On the Mm. first payout announcement, only 49% of eligible depositors requested a payment. And bank statistics show that these were largely claims from the wealthier depositors. Small account holders collected little to no funds. The delay payments as well as the limited share of depositors receiving them suggest that on average depositors receive far less than 62% of their deposits. So it just goes to show that we have been as black people. <laughs> oh, man, we've been duped, bamboozled. We've been robbed, <laughs> raped. Um, we've had our fortunes taken, our generational wealth stolen. And so, you know, when when we look, I think sometimes when we look at where we are in society and, and, and a lot of people, you know, wonder why we're not further ahead. I think that, you know, in some instances, black people blame black people, you know, um, as if we hadn't been ambitious enough or if we, you know, just have been lazy or, you know, I think a lot, um, one thing that I heard said is that we can't expect the people to oppress us to save us. You know, the people that have been responsible for putting the system in place are not going to be the people that are going to come to our rescue. So it's up to us to save ourselves. It's up to us to teach our generations and try to protect our assets. I think, you know, um, instead of going out spending two, $3,000 on a Louis Vuitton purse, that's just going to sit in the closet and probably collect dust, you know, I think that we have to learn and we and those that know have to teach others how, to, you know, what to do with those monies, how to start businesses, how to get loans. You know, we have been systematically denied small business loans, mortgages, things of that nature, even the GI Bill, you know, after World War II, um, did not give black soldiers access to the um, housing market as they should have. So there's been a years of head start for white people, uh, hundreds of years of free labor and investments in businesses <laughs> that have given them an advantage over us. And this is our black history. And these are the things that we have to teach our children so that they don't become ignorant to the fact of the things that have happened in their history and their past and the greatness in our in, in our history. I mean, black history just didn't start with slavery here in America. I mean, there was, you know, there's been black excellence that have gone, you know, gone on from the beginning of time. I mean, you know, every human being has derived from a black person. So I think here in America, you know, with this this new push on eliminating books and things of that nature, they only want black people to study history after 1970. You know, so we have to be very diligent. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in how we teach our children, um, you know, we can't expect our oppressors to teach us the things that they don't want us to know in, in, in our schools. You know, we can think of the things that we were taught in when we were in school or the things we weren't taught and we didn't learn till we were grown. Like, okay, now I, I should have known that <laughs> before I turned 50 years old, <laughs> you know, but mm-hmm. it's just certain things that we are taught. taught. And uh, I think that, you know, we expect our oppressor to educate us, you know, about what we need in order to get some type of power and some type of foundation and and income and not be, you know, one black person gets it, you know, I got mine, you get yours type of attitude or crabbed in the barrel, you know, people see you, you you make it to success and then, you know, they want to pull you down or hold you back. So, you know, we need uh, more unity and togetherness in in terms of growth, but I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir. So <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> so that has been my 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 sixty minutes of Black History uh, for February tenth. So uh, anyone have any final words that they would like to say or share? based on the information today. Okay. A friend of mine sent me an uh, invitation today for uh, watching a movie at Fellowship Chapel on West Outer Drive, and the name of the movie is The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks, and they're going to have a movie presentation and a discussion, and that's on February 28th. Mm-hmm. Okay. What time? Have time? At, at six PM, the door is open and it's free. Okay, well, that should be good. The rebellious life of Rosa Parks. All right. And it's also uh, another story about uh, another young lady that they were going to choose before Rosa Parks um, didn't get up. You know, while she sat on the bus, but just. Other young lady was uh, gotten pregnant. I think she was about sixteen with, you know, older man, and uh, so they couldn't use her for for the movement. So they chose Rosa Parks, and I can't remember her name. I think it was Carol. I can't remember the other lady's name. <clears throat> but we've got a extensive Black history. Any any final words, Sister Lucy? I was thinking of the movie of uh, the great debaters that I just recently, you know, I asked you sometime about that. And um, the role, the, uh, the uh, role that this um, uh, Methodist college, black kids uh, got together and they would debate the issues and how he taught them how to debate. And uh, it was very interesting. Uh, I think Oprah Winfrey and Denzel Washington put the movie out. And, uh, it was interesting how they came up, they were traveling around debating how they came upon these, uh, it was in Texas. They came upon this group of white people who was lynching this black man and tiring pheasant and burning him and all that stuff. And that had a profound effect on um, 
uh, on on the, the young guy that was there. His father was a preacher. Uh, Forrest Whitaker played it, played his father. But to, to what they what did they saw? He um, they and it's, it's based on a true story, from my understanding. And the thing was for them to go and debate Harvard. I think it was Harvard. And they, um, this small group of uh, young black people, um, they won the um, debate against the Harvard, um, Harvard College. And I thought it was very interesting. And um, he was trying to, the thing that helped them out more was this uh, professor who was teaching them that. He also tried to get a union started with the black sharecroppers and the white sharecroppers together. When they started having meetings like that, you know, then the, the, that force was able to do a lot more. But he was trying to get them to unionize. And it was interesting. It was a very interesting movie. It's called The Great Debaters. And uh, he went on, you know, to establish a union and things like that. And it's wonderful. It's something how, the, you know, we have such a creative ability among black people. Um, recently, I was listening to um, uh, this one uh uh, young woman, uh, she's from, uh, born in Sierra Leone. Her father's German, and she's an economist. And she was talking about how um, the country, the, the, the African continent, because of the resources and the things that they have, that all of these so-called superpowers is holding on to Africa, keeping them down so that they could use the resources because basically all around, they're broke. But they're still living off the African continent. The resources keep going on and on and on and on. And um, um, it was recently I saw her on um, one of the programs. On I was, you know, going through Google and things like that. And she was saying, you know what, you take our resources. And she was speaking to an entirely white audience. The woman is an economist. She said, but you give us your, your, your colored paper for our gold and our silver and our diamonds and all of it. Mm-hmm. They were all sitting there looking at it. And she said this one um, a French um, um, leader, president, he pointed out, he said, if it wasn't for what was coming out of Africa, France would starve. Mm. Right now, this is the situation right now, that they are living off the African resources. Or they wouldn't make it. They wouldn't make it at all. And it was interesting what she had to say. So still, based on black people's land, you know, the land that we have, then uh, that's the kind they keep, I guess, killing off the people who try to pull away from all of that, you know. Um, Malcolm X had a hard time because of um, trying to get the organization of African unity, but that was one big reason why. They're controlling the assets of the African of the uh, African continent, and they're not going to turn it loose. They're not going oh, to no, turn it loose. Not, not, not without a major yeah, fight. Yeah, it was very you know, No, they're not giving it away. That's just but what like, they'll do uh, is they'll show you it's starving. Yeah, that you're starving. These kids are starving, so you give it through UNICEF and you know and all these other programs to help the starving, help this, you know, the uh, all this other stuff, help them from starving and stuff. But they're starving because you won't turn them loose the assets, assets that they have. But they can charge us a, a, a healthy dollar for it because you can't pay it in the first place. It was interesting, mm. very interesting. Oh, yeah. That's Thanks like, so much, um, uh, our co-host, for that uh, information. My father's brother 
was uh, in 1946, he was lynched in Florida. And I, I, we saw letters that was written by a third good marshal and all of that, and ACP talking about what happened with him. And he had owned land. He, he was a, a businessman. He was a mm-hmm. businessman. But uh, that was in 1946 when I saw the Galatea. Now I can understand how come sometimes my father acted crazy because he saw his brother Lynn. And thanks so much for that information. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Jenny White. Yes. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed it. I had um, uh, something messed up to before it all came. But anyway, uh, the only thing I wanted to mention was with kids and how they're taking books out of the libraries and schools and stopping them to uh, learn how to write. I thought that was really crazy. But, uh, you know, since I have um, Echo, I want to... Thank you guys for being here. I appreciate you coming and just, you know, being here with us. And I, I go co-host for what he did. That was a lot of information. It was, it is. It showed that we've tried. We've, yeah. we've been doing. <laughs> yes. Mm. So before we go, I'd like to say... Ignorance can be educated, and crazy can be medicated, but there's no cure for stupid. <laughs> all right. All right. Like to and all the people say. <laughs> Amen. All the people say. guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all. Thank and you. And have a great uh, weekend. And don't forget, I have a, a birthday Thursday. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. Yeah. All right. I'm old. Oh, yeah. right. I'm old. Okay, I'm guys. Sure. I'm well, sorry. I'm going to tell you birthday now. <laughs> yeah. What's our young self? Go ahead. <laughs> Somebody yeah. make me a cake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Thank you Thanks for so being much. here and supporting us. Have a good weekend. You and too. We'll talk and about you. You next weekend. All righty. And let's talk about it with Jenny White next week. Good night. Bye bye. Good night. Good night.